22 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. We kick things off out in the world of business. Uh, a few stories out in company news, and we're also going to be checking in with the latest coming out of the post office and the competition tribunal. Joining me on the line to uh, take a look at uh, some of these stories is uh, Jimmy Moyaha, who's a market analyst. Jimmy, good evening. Welcome. Good evening, Ian. Good evening to our listeners. Thank you very much. I, I certainly hope you're well. Let's start off there with SPA. Uh, I think many of our listeners would know we have covered this story. Fictitious loans, um, allegations of discrimination here uh, with some of their franchisees and uh, all manner uh, of, uh, I guess, machinations on the accounting front and uh, which uh, the board has now agreed are reportable irregularities, which uh, will certainly be taken to the uh, Independent uh, Regulatory Board for Auditors. But uh, what do you make of this announcement? And uh, before I maybe share my own sense, I mean, just just some of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as you rightly mentioned, SPAs had quite a bit going for them um, in the last couple of days and weeks. Um, and I think the, the latest sort of update that, they, that, that came out this morning around uh, what it is that they did and, and that sort of thing. I think uh, SPAR's trying to sort of explain to um, shareholders and, and give reasons for, for what has happened. I mean, with, for example, with regards to the allegations of discrimination, they've said that they themselves, um, there was findings from uh, an independent law firm and the allegations were sort of unfounded. And then they go on to say that from a corporate governance perspective, they're going to be making some changes to their boards and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think it's, um, I can understand their viewpoint of wanting to rectify and wanting to fix the situation. Um, but one can't help but wonder if uh, the, the damage has been done um, to a certain degree. Um, obviously, the, the things like the share price will recover at some point and, and that sort of thing. But I, I mean, from, from a confidence perspective and from a management and governance perspective, certainly it does raise a couple of questions as to um, are the changes that have been proposed or the changes that are going to be made, are they changes that would have been made if all of this hadn't come to light? Mm. And I guess the big issue, of course, that uh, today's guidance to the market certainly was focused on, um, let's leave aside the issues of fictitious loans and all of that, was around the independence and the seeming you know, transitional or revolving door between the senior management of SPA and you know, significant positions in the board which should exercise some oversight over um, governance oversight over the um, activities of the management team. So, you know, Graham O'Connor uh, and, of course, some of the resignations that we've seen over the last while. In a way, I guess, trying to respond in this statement to this assertion that they don't have an independent board. And as a result of that, they've kind of glossed over this issue of fictitious loans, you know, irregularities or what I would call corruption and fraud. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is, um, the, you look at the irregular loan and how it's been explained to and, and what what the conversation has been had. I mean, PwC came out to say it was a reportable um irregularity and then still spa went on to say okay we're going to um then investigate this um and sort of get to our own little conclusion you know i mean they brought in a legal team with an accounting expert mm. to to fully investigate and all that and i mean if if your your external auditor is saying to you this is a concern and you still want to thereafter then still say we want to bring in an accounting expert um it, it does it does raise questions around that independent bizarre. element. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite bizarre. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, but do you not trust PwC's opinion? Why do you then pay for them as an external auditor if you don't trust their opinion? Um, but yeah, so I mean, with the with the 
governance thing, they've tried to address it to say we're appointing new independent uh, non-executive directors and um, Graham O'Connor will not make himself available for uh, re-election and the CEO's also then um, stepping down at, at the end of January and that sort of thing. But again, main question on the spot is, issue is, had these things not been raised, would these changes still have been made mm. and now that they have been raised what else needs to be raised for things to change are they only changing this are they only changing up to the point of what has been raised and then saying we hope you don't find anything else if there is anything else to find not saying there's anything else to find but if if the changes are limited in terms of scope is it just to appease what has been brought to the table or is it actual changes that they intended to make from the onset and I guess uh, it, it's something, I mean, one certainly have to, has to think about. I, I, if I was a shareholder, you know, I would take the statement, but also be asking myself what in the statement has gone unsaid. Uh, mm. Because as you say, I mean, it just seems to me that it was about running the clock of the process down a lot longer to try and maybe find a storyline about how it is that they would deal with this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, we- yeah, it's uh, certainly one we're going to be following quite closely. Uh, but uh, yeah, a story they're coming through from the Spa Group. And uh, let's stay out in the world of retail. Woolworths uh, giving some guidance here. And the interim numbers on uh, the, uh, I guess, looming interim numbers for the 26 weeks or the six months through to the end of December. Uh, right through to Christmas um, and uh, also giving some update on the disposal process around David Jones. What do you make of these numbers? I guess um, double-digit improvement in the South African operations. It seems also, though, uh, that uh, the financial services business operating quite well. Uh, But uh, the businesses out in New Zealand and Australia uh, still stuttering along as, uh, I guess, a full return to brick-and-mortar retail continues. Yeah, so I mean, definitely positive numbers and something Woolies definitely needed to, to put out. We know that um, the expectation around earnings per share and headline earnings per share is between 70 and 80% increase, uh, which is a very good, uh, very positive at this stage. Um, the, the, the David Jones thing, I think, is probably going to be uh, something that gives a bit of relief and comfort to shareholders. It's something that's been dragging us for so long. It's, got, it's gotten to a point of finality and it's now, I mean, the business is being held as a discontinued operation. It's going through um, all of that. And I think the main thing there was they carried that brand for so long and they carried those assets for so long and they just lost all of that value that they paid for it. I mean, they paid an exorbitant amount of money relative to what they're getting in terms of the sale price for it. But I think overall it just speaks to the fact that um, they were able to at least recover from some other areas of their business. And now with the, the dead weight of J- David Jones effectively being removed from the business, you're hoping that the second half of the year is uh, much stronger so that you have a, a decent full year, um, even though your Australia and New Zealand businesses might be lagging. You're hoping that everything that you're going to sort of see throughout second half or H2 of, of 2023 um, brings in some balance and your, your Australian New Zealand businesses start to see a recovery possibly um, into 2024. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the other element that I, I'm interested in your thoughts on, I mean, just that financial services uh, operation uh, of Woolworths there, uh, year-on-year increase of 17.2%, uh, new business, uh, new credit cards issued, um, and uh, I guess annualized impairment rate also increasing somewhat. Uh, what do you make, I guess, of the um, one credit extension of Woolworths um, and what that tells us about the ability, I guess, to use that channel of sales to move inventory? 
Look, I think this is a very positive thing for them. I mean, if you look at um, guys like the TFG that are operating in a similar type of manner, TFG has sort of gone into one multiple um, sort of brands that they're trying to get to customers, but also they're trying to add value at various levels. They're trying to add value with added services. And I think the financial services book for Woolies is something that they should definitely, um, or they're going to definitely be leaning into more and more, especially given that it's, uh, it, it's something that they can then pair well with their online business, um, with the, the food business. We know their food business um, is something that they're extremely proud of. We know that online sales were up about 22.7% as well. So overall, I think you, you want to have the ability, and TFG has done this really, really well, with the ability to service your, your client and retain your client for as long as possible through as many different areas and as many different service offerings as you can possibly provide. Mm-hmm. And if they execute on the financial services book properly, I think that could be something that could really help um, them tap into uh, their their existing client book and all of that. I mean, you know that we, we know the guys that have things like Woolies accounts and that sort of thing mm-hmm. can now tap into a Woolies revolving loan, can now tap into Woolies credit card. So you're, you're doubling up on the revenue you're getting from one client without needing to grow your client base. And if you're already established name like Woolworths, why didn't you do this sooner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, why didn't you explore the cross-selling opportunity much earlier? But uh, yeah. I guess it is what it is. But just the last one on this one, um, when we look at, uh, I guess you know, profitability from operations here in the case of Woods. I mean, they are operating margins over the last while. Um, they've probably been, I guess, much lower than, say, the Fushini Group, which uh, might be in comparable segments to them, uh, but uh, slightly higher, I guess, than the type of operating margins that one might find, say, at a shop right. What about, I guess, how they've managed their, you know, um, sort of core operations, uh, so which is the securing of inventory, its warehousing, and then, of course, the retail and ultimately getting all of us to get to the till and make our purchases. Uh, what do you make of that and how that is compared, I guess, to some of their competitors? Well, I think um, where they've really excelled is that they've, they've been able to sort of offer um, that quality and that value to clients um, within their brand and within the inventory and within the products that they offer. Um, yes, their margins are a little better than ShopRite, but um, where ShopRite has a bit more of an edge over Woolworths is their control over their, their value chain. Mm. They've got a greater control over their value chain in terms of what they're doing um, from end to end. And Woolworths has sort of said, okay, this is, we do one or two, we do this really well, we can get this done really um, efficiently, and, and they've optimized on those efficiencies. Great. Um, but again, like you said, they're lagging behind the likes of the Fushiri Group, which um, has been doing exceptionally well. You look at the, the margins that you're getting from guys like the, like Mr. Price as well, that's, that's now gone out into other brands as well to try and add more value to their core business. Um, I think Woolworths at this stage wanted to do something like that, and that was probably the vision with the David Jones brand um, when they initially purchased it was to say it's now going to add more value to some of our core business um, things and, and some of the core inventory that we do have to the market. Um, but at this stage, I think if you're comparing them like for like with, with competitors, Woolworths probably um, leverages largely off of the, in, or the efficiencies that they've been able to master, um, but they're still a long way, I think, away from <laughs> competing with the likes of ShopRite on, on value chain, um, just 
that that's something they've been able to do exceptionally well over the last number of years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's shift our attention now, I guess, uh, just briefly to the post office uh, set uh, to get its workers on short time to uh, encourage others to take up voluntary severance packages as they try and deal uh, with their their operating cost structure here uh, in a context where, I guess, very few of us are going to get our letters stamped um, and very few people are going to go and buy those postal stamps. Yeah, the post office conversation is—it's—it's it's not a—it's not a pleasant one. I mean, if you look at um, the impact this will have on workers, um, it, it, it's basically—and unions have called this nothing short of constructive dismissal for workers because you're effectively trying to push people out and that sort of thing. And and this is this is another tale of an SOE that's got. A way overweighted um, staff or workforce or whatever, and that's not the fault of the employees by any stretch of the imagination. That's something that hasn't been managed properly over the last number of years since they've taken on the um, labor bro- the temporary workers that were um, part of the labor brokers, and then uh, since they've taken on the courier division when that was dismantled. So it, it has nothing to do with the workers themselves, and they're at the mercy of the of the situation. But the reality of the post office is they're not getting the same revenues that they were getting um, when, well, pre-digital age and then that mm. sort of thing. But also, if you look at the post office's management on their side, I mean, when, when Postbank was still part of the post office and when the post office had the administration of things like uh, the SASA grants and those sorts of things, there, was, there were opportunities for the post office to manage their institution properly, and this is the result of that not happening mm. and unfortunately it's to the detriment of employees to the de- it's, it's always to the detriment of the working class that suffer mm. when things like this happen yeah. it's never to the detriment of in this case the the soe being government owned and i mean that sort of thing so i mean they, they've lost about what uh, 2.3 billion this year already so <laughs> the, the mismanagement feeds into everything else mm. and where em- where employees are now going to suffer the most is they're not being they're not really being given an alternative. So yeah, you can offer voluntary severance packages and all of that, but people don't necessarily want to be out of a job. It's not something that you want to walk into, but you also don't want to walk into your job and be told, "Hey, you're getting a forty percent salary cut because well, that's just how it is." So you either take that or or, or you can leave. You know, so it puts employees in a very very difficult position, mm. especially in an economic climate where you're not seeing economic growth, there aren't opportunities for employment, you've got 29 million people on social grants, um, you, you're not, you're leaving the job is not guaranteed that you'll get another one. You know mm, what I mean? Mm. And you know, I mean, I guess the, there's two elements to what you're saying, which I find very interesting. The first one is, you know, for the post office, um, and I guess in the near future for the post bank, this idea of maximizing agency fees from the provision of last mile government services, has certainly, I mean, if I think of, you know, their numbers in 2020, 2021, it was probably the, the boon that gave them a very good top-line number because they were paying out all of those 350 grants. Um, mm. And if you add to that, you know, um, you know, vehicle licensing and uh, you could extend so many other services via mm. that as a channel that could at least, you know, bring in some much-needed uh, agency fees for, for the SAPO. But the second element is what we see now in the massive proliferation of e-commerce and, uh, you know, the role of courier services there. I mean, post office has a monopoly in law 
over parcels under one kilogram. And uh, this might be one of those business school case studies of how you go about squandering a monopoly. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, 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 you're given not only a monopoly, you're giving first rights to take advantage of that monopoly, mm. and you're not doing that. So it's, it's not as though it's, it's a monopoly by the virtue of the fact that there, are, there isn't competition or whatever. You are, you are protected. You are basically, there's legislation that guarantees you income, that protects your income. And you're not using that. You're, and even if you are using that, are you using that to the extent that, I mean, if you look at the staff-related expenditure, that accounts for about 68% of the post office's total expenditure. So you're, you're clearly missing something to say, okay, we, we have such a large um, staff contingent. How are we maximizing them? How are we utilizing that? Because if you have... The as you mentioned around the the one kg parcels and and below and all of that and you look at the the presence of the post office they used to they, they, there was a point where there was a post office some every every single um, community every single uh, area had had a post office you know what I mean mm. and for you to if if you look at that setup right and you compare it to take a lot of distribution channel right now where they've set up. Um, collect boxes where they've set up take a lot warehouses and you can go and collect from that. That take a lot is, a, by comparison to the post office, take a lot is a new age business. It's a baby mm, business. Mm. The, the, the infrastructure that the post office has had over the number of years that they've had it and the fact that the bulk of this infrastructure they can leverage off of because it is linked to government. Yeah. If you want to then consolidate, if you're saying, okay, cool, uh, our positioning is, is not ideal or whatever, we need to rethink and relook at our positioning. You're the post office. You can be positioned virtually anywhere where you mm. want to be, and the government will support that. Yeah. But you're not, you're not utilizing that, and now we've had to resort to alternative things. The exact same thing with anything else that's, that, that's underutilized in, in South Africa. You look at um, the public schools model, um, the, the lack of resources that are being put through by government to public schools have resulted in parents going the route of putting their kids in private schools. That's why, I mean, we're going to get the, we, the, the matric pass rate for, for public schools, and then you compare that to the matric pass rate for private schools. It's because there's a lack of efficiency from the government in operating this enterprise that an alternative is sought out. Mm. If the post office was efficient from day one, take a lot would probably not have had a presence in South Africa and they would have struggled to 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 get some form of a footprint or they'd still be in competition with the post office at this yeah. stage. Yeah. Last one uh, before I let you go just briefly here, Jimmy, uh, more coming to light about I guess the uh, salient details of uh, that looming tie up between Heineken and Distel and it's uh, certainly I guess uh, as as can be expected roughing up their main competitor, AB and Bev. <laughs> yeah, and, and AB and Bev is, is responding as um, a business that's, that's been roughed up, but mm. that also wants to antagonize the process quite a bit. Jimmy, Jimmy let's do this, because I, I see I've got an ad break nearing on me. So let's quickly pause just for a second. Let's take the spot break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how uh, looming Distel Heineken tie-up uh, might ruffle the feathers of uh, AB and Bev. 17 minutes before 8 p.m. And uh, you tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, it's our wrap of the top business stories. And uh, wrapping up, of course, our assessment of company news, the latest coming out of uh, the uh, post office and uh, also the Competition Tribunal, uh, which is uh, hearing the matter there between 
the two merging parties, Distel and Heineken. And uh, of course, as uh, is often the case, uh, I guess to the chagrin and concern of AB and Bev, which is uh, one of the incumbent competitors. And I'm joined by Jimmy Moyaha to uh, speak about that one. Jimmy, uh, yeah, the latest coming out of the tribunal. Uh, we do know Heineken had initially... Uh, indicated that they would dispose of their Strongbow offering, which, of course, they brew all the way out in uh, Asedi Bang. And uh, I guess now AB and Bev saying, no, 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 that's not the one we would like disposed of in this tie-up. But actually, uh, some of the other, you know, uh, 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 I guess, cider brands that might be sitting in uh, the Distel camp. Yeah, well, I mean, from, from, <laughs> from SAB and AB and Bev side of it, I think it's it's interesting that they're calling for hunters to be disposed of. You're very particular in um, specifying that you want them to dispose of their most uh, profitable brand of mm-hmm. cider. Um, I, <laughs> I think that's just, again, it's it can be interpreted as wanting to antagonize the situation, wanting to frustrate the process. Wait, I mean, Jimmy, um, is, is that the most profitable one? Is hunters the most profitable? Well, between Hunters and Strongbow, I mean, oh, yes, there's yeah, a yeah. clear difference between those two. I would have thought and it's Savannah, so, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, in South Africa, it's, it's more than likely to, to lean towards Savannah. But this is the thing, right? So as AB InBev, you've come out to say we, we want, yeah, it, it can be argued that you want uh, a bigger um, sort of, or to create a, a more level playing field. But AB InBev is no small uh, company in, in in its own right, you know. So for them to say dispose of, of the hunters, um, are we going to then see AB InBev want to come in for the hunters? Mm. Um, <laughs> it's, are they setting themselves up to uh, become an even bigger uh, behemoth of a business than what they already are? Um, are they are their concerns legitimate? Are their what they're bringing towards the tribunal is that legitimate concern for market competition, or is that to drive their own agenda? Hmm. Now, now I guess the you know the other element of of this particular deal, just as we wrap up, which um, you know uh, I guess many people might uh, be interested in, is the implications in the market, especially not just only for ciders but other you know alcoholic beverages that are sold here off this tie-up, if indeed it does go through. Uh, we do know, I mean, the major player here is AB and Bev, which is the parent company of South African breweries. Uh, but if indeed this, this tie-up does happen in the Southern African beverages market, what's the likely impact? So, I mean, um, if, if this deal goes through, we know that uh, part and parcel of it from Heineken's perspective was to, to split some of um, the offer, so the, the initial offer, I think, was around 180 rand a share, of which 165 was to go towards um, ciders, the, the wine brands, the Amarula brand, the, the spirits brands, and all of that. But there is a component of it that's going to go towards um, Distel's current international whiskey brand, which will then um, be delisted. So there's going to be that element and that component to look at to say uh, the existing shareholder that we know, obviously, from Distel's perspective is Remgro. They're going to now maintain a majority stake in this new delisted uh, whiskey brand as well. So the 15 rand of the 15 rand a share of the 180 rand offer is going towards uh, that side of the business. Um, but from an international product offering perspective and all of that, I mean, we know Heineken um, has breadth of products that they can offer to the market at this stage, mm. and it is competitive product. So it's not to say that um, 
their acquisition of the spell will uh, reduce that. What they might do is they might look at uh, areas within the Namibian business or the South African business and say, uh, what have we doubled up on? What what can we sort of afford to, to do without? Um, and phase that out over time. But I certainly think that at this stage, from, from a, an offering perspective to the market and from what consumers will be able to do, um, it will allow Heineken to also bring in some of their international brands into South Africa um, at a more competitive rate or at a more competitive price point or um, utilize some of the local brands that might have popularity outside of South Africa and leverage off of that. So it'll bring more to market, I think, for consumers to, to be able to enjoy. Um, but certainly, I think one has to look at the fact that uh, AB InBev, where they're currently positioned within the South African market, um, is, a, is quite a strong position. And that's the reason Heineken wants to enter the market as well as they believe they can give them a run for their money. And this is the way to do it rather than coming in and trying to establish new brands or bring in new brands. Um, we, we saw something similar happen when uh, Budweiser was sort of introduced into South Africa as well, uh, when they became uh, the sponsor for for the, the FIFA World Cup, or they aligned themselves with FIFA as well. So we've seen that in the alcohol space, the introduction of new brands has to be very, very carefully planned, especially with, in a market that already has so many brands across so many different uh types of alcohol and, and types of beverages. So it'll be interesting to see how the deal goes ahead and if Heineken is willing to give up uh, Hunters or if that's going to have them reconsider the price, if that's going to have them come in and say, okay, cool, we'll give up Hunters, but in turn we will then reduce our offer or we're not going to give up Hunters, the deal can fall through and Remgro can keep the style, which is, I, I, I don't think it's a, a likely situation at this point. They seem very interested in this acquisition. Mm. Jimmy, always a pleasure catching up with you, my brother. We'll have to leave it here for tonight. And uh, yeah, all of the best. Take care. All of the best to you too. Jimmy Moyaha, the market analyst, helping us with our wrap of the top business stories.